Today we're continuing and actually concluding our series called Life. We're looking at different aspects uh, of our life and how the gospel directly applies to them. Today we'll be in Genesis uh, chapter 31, verses 5 through 19. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to uh, join me there. If you would like a Bible, there are some available on the tables in the back, or you can use your digital device. We're using the English Standard Version. And today, uh, we conclude the series. We've been talking about, uh, we've talked about race and racism. We've talked about abortion and adoption. We've talked about immigration, how to uh, serve and how to uh, relate to immigrants and sojourners. And today, we're talking about sexual assault, sexual abuse, rape, and harassment. And uh, as Don said a moment ago, this may not be um, helpful for those of us with young kids. And also, I know that this is going to be painful. Um, because the, the issue of sexual assault, abuse, rape, harassment, it's, it's prevalent in our society. And I know that even just me saying those words out loud for many of us, uh, that's bringing back memories, a flood of memories that haunt us in deep pain. And so I, I want to encourage you to stick with me. Uh, I have nothing to offer you in and of myself. I can't help you. Uh, except to point to Jesus. And I would encourage you today uh, to hang with me, and and perhaps you'll see Jesus more clearly, feel his presence more profoundly today. I've had the opportunity to go to Kampala, Uganda twice, once in 2013, once in 2014. I hope to go back again to serve. Uh, The first time I went in 2013, we went and we did ministry uh, with an orphanage there uh, called Watoto. Some of you might have uh, been here a couple weeks ago for the Watoto Choir. Uh, there's a, a variety of ministries in Kampala, Uganda, one of which, it's, it's not Watoto, but it's Corollary, and they do ministry to uh, young uh, children in the slums, specifically young boys. And uh, one of the things that we did when we were there is we, they, had a, they brought us out in a bus, they, they, they parked uh, in this slum, we went to this field, and there's burning trash piles and, you know, just kind of litter everywhere. And, <clears throat> Uh, and they said, okay, so what we're going to do today was we're going to play soccer with, uh, with the boys. And, and all these boys started coming out of the slum. Many of them live as orphans by themselves. They're coming out from the shacks that they live in or wherever they're from. And, and they're boys ranging from three years old on up to about 13. And there were some, um, oh, there's about 50, 60 uh, to my memory. And we're playing soccer, and, you know, you're picking them up, and you're wrestling with them. And, and they said, you know, we'd encourage you to do that. They don't have a lot of uh, men in their life, and so we'd encourage you to do that. And in conversations later, one of the things that some of us noticed was that on some of the boys' arms and shoulders were numbers that were, were cut into them or inked onto them. And it asked, what are the numbers about? Thinking maybe this is a sports team. You know, sometimes uh, boys will affiliate with, uh, with an athlete, and they'll want to wear their number. And so is this a sports team? No, it wasn't a sports team. Uh, is this some sort of, you know, neighborhood or communal or maybe even a gang thing? No, it's not that. No, the number is their price. That's how much that people in power will pay to have sex with them. Four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, boys. Sexual assault, abuse, rape, harassment, it is prevalent in our society. The statistics, uh, I've got an aggregate of statistics here, basically that at least in our country, one in four women and one in six men are or will be victims of sexual assault in their lifetime. One in four, one in six, that means that many of us in this room have been directly impacted by this. This is not something that happens out there to those people. This is something that happens in here to our family, 
and friends. And so we're going to talk about it this morning. And listen, it's prevalent not only today, it's been prevalent at the corridors of history you see sexual assault and abuse and rape in Jesus' own family tree. In fact, if you were to go to the Gospel of Matthew and look at the lineage of Jesus, and it's got, you know, the lineages are boring, but if you looked at all those names, you would find that many of those names, you look at their family history, you see that in Jesus, family history is rampant harassment, assault, sexual evil, abuse, and rape. I'll prove it to you. Abraham offered up his wife to Pharaoh to be part of his harem in order to save his own skin. He said, this isn't my wife, this is my sister. And he leveraged his wife's, uh, leveraged that sex menemi with his wife to save his own skin. His relative Lot, when an angry mob was coming at him to rape two of his guests that were in his house, instead of fighting off the mob, he offered up his own daughter. One of Abraham's uh, offspring in his line, Jacob. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, but through a deceit, ended up marrying Leah and let her know that she was a huge disappointment to him and ended up marrying Rachel as well in a polygamist marriage. His son, Judah, Looking at what he thought to be a prostitute, ended up having sex with his own daughter-in-law, who, when he found out that she had been improper with a man, said, burn her. And she said, thou art the man. And he said, you are more righteous than I And Judah's brother Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. You remember Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Joseph was sold into slavery to a person named Potiphar and his wife. And Potiphar and his wife owned Joseph. And his wife used her position of power and authority to try to, have jo- to try to force Joseph to have sex with her. Later on down in the lineage of Jesus, you get to King David, one of the most powerful men in Jesus' line. And upon seeing his neighbor Bathsheba desired after her and used his power and position to force her to have sex with him, something that we call today a power rape. It's interesting that her identity in the lineage of Jesus is Uriah's wife, still maintaining fidelity to her husband that David killed. And David's son, following after his father's dysfunctional footsteps, Amnon perceived in his sister a sexual object that he wanted to have, and so he deceived his sister and raped her, and at the conclusion of it said, this is your fault, I hate you. Sexual assault and abuse is not something that is new. It's something that has been prevalent since the very foundation of time. And here in this text today, we will see the insidious nature of sexual assault and abuse. Check it out in verse 5, chapter 39 of Genesis. We'll put it up on the screen as well. From the time, and so what's happened is Joseph was sold into slavery. He was, uh, he was owned now by Potiphar and his wife. And Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of the whole household. And this is what it says from the time, this is verse 5. From the time that he was made overseer in his house, that's Joseph. And over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. 
The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the very food that he ate. Joseph was a good worker and a good leader. Then it says in the second part of verse 6, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now one of the jobs of a preacher is to help bring the text to life in modern day. And so I would like to now help you understand Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. <laughs> Just want to help you get to grips with what the text says, okay? Right? Now I don't think my wife is here because uh, I didn't hear any amens, and so that's okay. But in verse 7, in verse 7, we're going to move on and say, that after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes, check that word, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me, TV timeout. She is not saying, let's go not tell the truth together. She's saying, come and... Verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put me charge, uh, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, check that, day after what? Day, day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, so again, it's empty, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. As soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up the garment uh, by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. As soon as I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. This is the word of the Lord. Now, in this text, you see a few things at play. Number one, you see in verse 6 and 7 the objectification of a person. Check it, verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Verse 7, and after a time, his master's wife, what? Cast her eyes on Joseph. This is not a casual glance. This is not a whoop. This is a, hey, boy. How are you doing? This is a fixing of the eyes onto another person and in your mind creating them or imagining them as an object, the objectification of another person. She makes Joseph into a sexual object. Objectification, and this is insidious because here she is in power. Here he is in a position of vulnerability. She looks, she casts her eyes upon him and says, You exist for my pleasure. You are an object for me. That's it. 
And objectification is oftentimes where sin of this regard starts. We live in a pornified culture. Our entertainment, our movies, our magazines, our music, our television, our advertisements. Look around the world and tell me that we are not objectifying people. It's looking at another person and saying, no, you are not a person with inherent dignity, worth, and value. You are not a person made in the image of God. You are a piece of meat for my gratification. See, the scripture tells us that every person, every person is made in the image and likeness of God with inherent dignity, worth, and value. The image and likeness of God, it's called the Imago Dei. But when we make someone else into an object for our personal gratification, we are turning the Imago Dei into carne asada. We are making them a piece of meat for my sexual appetites. Let me lean on it a little bit. I'd encourage you, take stock of where you cast your eyes. In the home, in the workplace, on the computer, in the bookstore, in the church, are there people that you have cast your eyes upon and in your mind made them into an object for your gratification? When we objectify another person, when we make them into an object merely for our own gratification, we are directly assaulting the image of God and what God says to be true about them. So here, she, in this insidious way, objectifies Joseph. You'll see, too, in verse 10. Check this out. But one day, he went into the house to do work. So what's he doing? He's showing up at work. And none of the men of the house was there in the house. I want you to see in verse 11 that the scene is set. You see this? Now, what we don't know is why there were no other people in the house. It could well be that she was like, hey, everyone, I need you to go. I need you. It might be a trap. I need you guys to go outside. And there are some of us who right now, today, are in workplaces where we can't show up. We are afraid to show up if there's not enough people there because that person that we work with, we feel and fear or know to be true that they are objectifying us and they are seeking to use or abuse us. Here now, Joseph shows up to work and she uses her power to abuse him or to try to abuse him. Day after day, it says, she's harassing him. Some of you know what that looks like. Some of you know what that feels like. To day by day be harassed by someone who's in power or authority. To be sexually harassed. To be whistled at. To be treated as simply a piece of meat. There are others of us who are doing that to other people through our objectification, through the jokes that we tell, through the things that we share with our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors. And here she uses insidiously her power to seek to abuse just as David Amnon later will do. Verse 14, you find something else insidious. 
namely this. She called to the men. So this happens. Joseph flees. She calls the men of her house and says to them, come here, come here, come here. See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Namely, she's blaming her husband. He brought this Hebrew in to shame us. He came, namely Joseph, he came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. Now, is that what happened? So here are all the men of the household, right? The, the workers, the other co-workers. She says, everybody come in here real quick. Joseph just tried to have sex with me. And I got it, and he left his coat. Is that what happened? No. What happened? She tried to have sex with it. She tried to use her power and authority to sexually abuse and potentially rape him. But he left his coat, right? And that's the proof that she's got. So she manipulates in power. This, this power player uses something that's true and manipulates it to blame who? The victim. And boy, oh boy, are we in a current cultural moment where the victims are the one who get blamed. Well, she was asking for it by the way she dressed is not an appropriate or accurate or just statement. Well, you know what? He wouldn't have raped her if she wasn't dressed that way. She was probably asking for it. I don't know how many times I've heard that, seen that, seen people intimate that. What's that? It's It's taking something that may be true. Maybe the person was sexually appealing and manipulating it and turning it so that it can be leveraged. And so we're not holding the rapist accountable. We're, holding the, we're trying to blame the victim. And it's the insidious nature of sexual assault, abuse, harassment, and rape in that, by and large, the person in power is trusted over the victim. You see it here. The abuser is believed. Verse 15, it goes on. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. She light up his garment by her until the master comes home. Master comes home. She says the same story. And people, everyone there, they're believing her. They're believing the power player. Within our community and within our neighborhoods, within our city, Many times a victim will choose to be silent because they do not think that they will be believed. Uh, NPR, um, which I listen to so I can be smug and self-satisfied. NPR recently did a report on sexual assault, abuse, and rape among our mentally handicapped or intellectually disabled brothers and sisters. And this is what they found. That if it is true, which I believe that it is uh, even higher than this, but if it is true that one in four women and one in six men will be victims of sexual assault in their lifetime, then those of our neighbors, our brothers and sisters who have intellectual handicaps are seven times more likely to experience sexual assault, rape, and abuse. Because the perpetrator is oftentimes trusted. I mean, even just reading through it, listening to and reading through the articles, it's, it's devastating. I mean, statements like this. He said he was my boyfriend. He said one day we were going to get married. He's my caretaker. He's my driver. He helps me. He said he took a wrong turn and I needed to help him stay warm. Questions get asked. What, Honey, why didn't you... 
Why don't you tell somebody? Who would I tell? Who would believe me? You see it at work here in that the power player is the one who's believed. And, and I listen to this and I, I read this. I, 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 I begin to explore this. And what wells up within me is absolute rage. Put me in a room with these guys. Give, me, give them to me. I'll take them to town. Right? I got my bat and I'm ready. But here's the counterbalance. I... I, I, I the, the gospel is true for us all. And the gospel makes radical demands on our life. And this is what I don't want to hear. So now we're in the sermon that, like, I don't want to hear the things that are about to come out of my mouth. Y'all with me on that? So I'm not, like, happy in and of myself about what's about to happen. You guys with me on that? Okay. But it's the truth. It's bringing the gospel to bear here. Now, here we go. Uh, some of us have been following the Larry Nasser case, a, a man who's been convicted of uh, molesting and assaulting, and I believe raping many young uh, girls on the uh, Olympic uh, gymnastics team. And he's being sentenced, and one of, the fathers of, uh, one of the fathers was there, and he goes to the judge. He says, judge, put me in a room with that guy for five minutes as part of his sentencing. And the judge says, I can't do that. He says, give me a minute. She says, I can't do that. And then he charges after the man. And that's exactly what I want. Like, that's me. If it happened to one of my kids, that's me guaranteed apart from the gospel. I want that so bad. I want to flip that table over and rip that guy's throat out of his body. But then I'm reminded of the crucified and risen Christ who says, through the scriptures... Beloved, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Never avenge yourselves. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Stupid Bible. And what's interesting is the person who penned that through the power of the Spirit was someone who was abandoned, betrayed, abused, imprisoned, tortured. Okay. Now, let me be clear. Okay? I, need, I need you guys to follow me on this. There is a difference between pursuing justice and pursuing vengeance. You all with me? There's a, difference, there's a difference between standing for and pursuing justice and striving for vengeance. Here we go. We have to. We must. We are compelled by the gospel to use our power, our assets, our relational capital, our voices to stand for, empower, and bring about to the best of our capacities uh, options for healing and flourishing for the abused, the betrayed, and the abandoned. We have got to stand up and do what's right when it is demanded of us, which the gospel demands of us, to stand up for victims of rape, sexual abuse, sexual assault, and harassment. We've got to stand for that. But there's a difference between pursuing justice and pursuing vengeance. We must not fall into the trap of allowing evils done to us to justify doing evil to others. Many victims, now this is hard, I do not want to say this and I definitely don't want to hear it, but I believe that this is bringing the gospel to bear to this moment. 
We, for those of us who are victims, we must not allow the fact that we have been the victim to justify making ourselves into monsters. Oh my. Who is capable to do this? Joseph escaped. He ran. He was imprisoned. But many of us are not in a position in which we were able to or not able to, haven't been able to escape. So let me encourage you in this regard. There are some of us, even now, this moment, are wondering, am I in this circumstance? Things are so confusing. Things are so cloudy. Am I being abused? Are they, are they abusing me? Is this me? Let me just encourage you in this. To, to seek counsel. As a church family, we have counts, professional counselors outside of the church that we would love to connect you with. If you're asking that question, if you're wondering, am I trapped? I feel trapped. I feel like this person's not doing right things to me. I feel like maybe you know, he or she, they're, 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 maybe, maybe that's me. Maybe, maybe as I'm watching these gymnasts gives testimony, maybe that's me. If, the, if you're there, if you're there, pursue Healing, and, and as a church, we're here. There's there's ways I'm going to talk about in just a moment. But at the very least, in the back of the seat in front of you is a ministry guard. Our phone number's on there. You can call. It can be as anonymous as we can make it. We have people within the office who would, uh, with confidentiality, walk you through that process. Do not leave it unchecked. And there are some of us who are just afraid of what they'll do to us if we seek help. And I know. Hmm. But as a church family, we will do everything within our power to put you into relationships and opportunities to find healing. And it will be a long, long road, and it will not be easy. But God is good. I say this knowing that many times it is people within the church who do the abuse. In fact, out of those one in four women and one in six men who are victims of sexual assault in their lifetime, most victims, approximately 80% or more, are assaulted by someone they know, a relative, a friend, a, a dating partner, a spouse, a pastor, a teacher, a boss, a coach, a therapist, a doctor, etc. I just want to let you know, as a church family, we are committed to putting in as much safeguards as we possibly can with anonymity, confidentiality, and accountability within our leadership team. That does not mean that something like that could never happen. But I want you to know that we take it damn seriously because it is devastating when it is gone unchecked and when it's allowed to happen. The consequences are so dire. The consequences range anywhere from pregnancy to physical pain to the loss of community and social capital to not being believed to just, just living with the stigma of being a victim in this regard, to dealing with shame, guilt. Many of us, we, 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 we have, we're haunted by dreams. I know that there's some of us who I've spoken to where every day when we wake up, oh my God, where are you? Why is this monster still in my head? And for some of us, our very identity is in limbo in our minds because we want to know, am I, am I just a piece of meat? Am I nothing more than trash like they say? Is it my fault? I 
I have no 10-step or 12-step program for you. I have no special pill that you can take to make it all better. I have nothing in my own experience to give to you. The only thing that I can do is point you to Jesus. I want to encourage you in this regard. Number one, Jesus knows what it is like. Jesus knows what it is like to be betrayed by one close to you. The kiss of Judas, a confidant and friend, is an act of betrayal. Many of you have been betrayed by someone very close to you. And I want you to know that this, this Jesus that we pray to and sing to understands experientially what it means to be betrayed. We do not pray to a distant, ambiguous God. We pray to one who, in every way as we, has experienced the trials, the pains, the trivialities, the tortures of human life. When you pray, you pray to one who knows what it is to be betrayed. But let me push it even further. I just want, I know that this is going to make some of us, this is going to be, maybe this is going to come across like, um, like it's overwhelming, like it's too much. I want to just ask you to hang with me through this. Okay, here we go. That the public <clears throat> shaming of Jesus means that we pray to a God who is familiar with guilt, shame, scorn. Hmm, even the stigma. Uh, Michael Traynor, who's a theologian and an author, says this. There's a couple points where I'm going to paraphrase some of his work, but this is all Michael Traynor's work. This is what he said. The stripping of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is the author's way of emphasizing that this is the pinnacle of abuse. Jesus' nudity is derisively covered by a centurion's scarlet robe, but it does not hide the powerful significance of this involuntary public stripping. Jesus is not only a victim of physical abuse, falsely accused and condemned by the machinations of political and religious officialdom, he is now, here in the Gospels, a victim of sexual abuse. The exposure of Jesus' penis, the symbol of sexual power and identity, is the ultimate act of shaming and abuse. He is verbally abused, ridiculed for being a royal pretender and the alleged chosen one of God. He is publicly scorned, humiliated between two criminal attendants, and finally crucified naked. When we pray, when we cry out, God, where are you? When we cry out, God, do you know? Can you know what it is like? The answer is, I am here. I am with you. And I know what it is like. We do not pray to a distant, far-off, apathetic God. We pray to a God who knows experientially what it is to experience shame and derision. This is why in Hebrews 4.15 it says this, For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus sympathizes with our pain, our agony, and the evils that have been done towards us and to us. Dorothy Sayers says this, Quick time out. We, we ask the question, why did this happen to me? Some of you are there. Some of you ask that to God every day. God, why did you, God, why did you let, God, why did this happen to me? And I have asked that question and I have never received an answer. 
as to why a specific evil has been visited upon me in a specific moment at a specific time. I never hear a voice from the Lord that says, well, you know, in 10 years, it's going to shape you into being a great man, and, you know, you'll be, look good in a sweater vest, it'll be awesome, like, this is, it's all, that's all going to work out. I never get that answer. Never, never. I ask God, why me? Why this specific evil specifically to me in this specific point in time? And as I read through the scriptures, there have been thousands upon thousands who have pleaded with God, God, why? And we don't get an answer specifically. But it cannot be that our pain and suffering is meaningless because Jesus himself experienced pain, suffering, derision, shame, and evil. Dorothy Sayers, an author in the early 1900s, says this, Whatever reason God chose to make people as we are, limited and suffering, subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever the reason that God has chosen to allow us to suffer, we know that it is not in vain, for he himself has suffered. When we pray, when we cry out, we cry out to one who knows. And so for those who are here in despair, for those here who are in agony, for those here who are longing, go to Jesus. Go to him. He knows. You can turn to him. There is no shame in turning to him. He will not look upon you as damaged goods. We sang it a moment ago. I am free and I am made pure. In Christ Jesus, you are free, and you are made pure, though the healing takes a lifetime. For those of us who have been victims of these great evils, we are not defined by the evils that have been done to us or done against us. And also, now hear me, for those of us who have done this great evil, to someone else. We are not defined by the evil that we have done. We are still told that though marred, that we are made in the image and likeness of God with inherent dignity, worth, and value. And friends, let me be very clear that Christ calls hmm, the raped and the rapist to redemption and salvation. And that's hard to hear for those of us who have been hurt, but Christ calls all come. For those of us that have done this great evil, that is brought to bear on our lives. The gospel has something to say to us. Namely, number one, that we are redeemed, that we are made whole in the eyes of God. But it also means this, that we are to the best of our capacities with wisdom, compassion, and patience, make it right. For some of us, that means turning ourselves in. For some of us, that means connecting with someone through a mediator or a moderator. For some of us, that means seeking counsel so that we can bring about reconciliation. Okay? This is not cheap but it is amazing grace.
I'm going to leave you with uh, a handful of things. I'm going to ask, we've got a slide that we can put up here on the screen. Uh, Two uh, ministries I want to tell you about. Number one is Mending the Soul, which is the first URL up there. If you have, uh, if you're resonating with this, if if you need to find a place of healing, let me tell you, I cannot... I recommend Mending the Soul so, so highly. It, the, the confidentiality that's maintained, I don't know who's a part of the ministry, the majority of our staff, only those who are directly involved. I mean, we, we keep it as confidential as we can. It's a citywide ministry, and so perhaps if you think, boy, I don't know if I want to like, bump into somebody from church as a part of that, you go to that website, they'll tell you about all the groups that are going on here in the valley. If you are here, you're feeling that well, I need to bring healing, I need to be in a group of people, men or women, who can help me Mending the Soul, please check that out. You can write that down in the back of the seat in front of you as a ministry guide with that website as well. Number two, if you're wrestling through addictions or addictive behaviors, whether it be pornography, sex addiction, maybe it's an abusive behavior, I'd strongly encourage you to visit our Celebrate Recovery. They meet here Tuesday nights at 7. You can find out more information at that second website, dsbc.church slash cr. Here's the jam, though. There's going to be some people from Desert Springs there. I highly recommend I love Celebrate Recovery. Cannot recommend it enough. However, I also know that for some of us, just the idea of bumping into someone from the church that we're a part of might be hard. And so there's a link to the Celebrate Recovery, uh, all, the, all the ones that meet here in the valley. I'd encourage you, regardless of where it is that you find uh, community and fellowship, to avail yourselves of that. Number two, we are absolutely committed to helping you find healing. And so there are some of us who need professional counseling. By and large, our pastoral staff, we do not offer long-term counseling. It's not our skill set, and we, we're not necessarily equipped for that. We can offer pastoral care and counseling, but there are many of us who need to uh, be in a relationship with a professional Christian counselor. We have people that we're connected to. If you uh, text your name or, or email address to that number, listen, we're going to do our very best to maintain uh, confidential and anonymity. There's only one person that'll be checking that. They'll help connect you. But if money is a problem, which counselors, they expensive. Very expensive. But we are committed to help. We have a fund that we can help provide some scholarships for some counseling there with some of our uh, the amazing counselors that we have here in our community. I would just strongly encourage you, if you want to know more about any of that, uh, if you have any questions, you go to that website, you send your name and number, you can text, you can call that phone number too. We, as a church family, we want to help. Uh, number three, there are some of us who are leading children and teenagers through this. And let me just give you this. Our Adventure Kids, uh, Amy, ministers to families and to parents, and she would love to connect with you and help connect you to a variety of resources that we have uh, for uh, parents or, or adults who are ministering to children and teens and walking them through this. And finally, let me end with this, and then I'm going to have the band come up, and we're going uh, to sing. Um, this is so dark. And for many of us, it's, it's, it feels distasteful to even bring it up in a public setting. But I want to say this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to be light in what? Darkness. And simply because it, because it is painful and dark, as a church family, we have got to look it in the eye. Because the gospel speaks to it, brings healing, brings light, brings life. And so as a church family, we are committed to this. But I just... I, There are people in your life you need to be praying for. There's jokes and words that you need to stop telling and saying. There's things that you should not be posting on social media. 
in order to care better for those who have been victims and those who are perpetrators of sexual assault, sexual abuse, harassment, and rape. We must be a people who point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need a better vision than the darkness, and that vision is Christ.